Good morning. We're going to be reading from Psalm 172. A mascal of David when he was in the cave, a prayer. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him, I tell my trouble. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who watch over my way and the path where I walk. People have hidden a snare for me. Look and see. There's no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge. No one cares for my life. I cry to you, Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison, that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. This is the word of God. Praise be to his name. Good morning. My name is Adam, if uh, we haven't met, and it's great to have you join us today, whether you're here in the building or whether you're joining us online. You know, let me uh, just mention something before we uh, dive in. Last week, I shared with you that we have the wonderful problem of our 9am service being nice and full. And so we've been looking into ways that we can, can create more space for more people uh, to come along to join us and, and most importantly, find the hope and the life that is in Jesus. So we've been working hard behind the scenes and, and we hope to be able to share with you next week a, a plan that might be a next step for us as a church community. So I just want to encourage you to keep praying, to keep pressing in, to keep inviting, uh, and especially to tune in, to be here next week um, as we share with you what we think uh, the next step is where the Lord is leading us as a church. So with that being said, let me uh, pray for us and then we'll uh, open up God's word together. Father, thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Help us to listen to it now, Lord to learn from it, and most importantly, to live it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For the last month, we have been in a sermon series, as Emma mentioned, called Untangled, Making Sense of Our Emotions. And today, we come to the end. We land the plane. Now, I know that this has been a little bit different to what we usually do. But I hope that there's been something valuable, something helpful for you to take away. I hope there's been something that you've been able to apply to your life. Personally, for me, the greatest takeaway, it has been the invitation from God to be honest. To be real with him about what I'm feeling, about what is going on in my interiority. In fact, I've really come to cherish Psalm 62, verse 8. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. 
God invites us to be real with him about what's going on with us. And I hope that there's been something that you've been able to apply and to take away for your life. Now, if this is your first week with us, if you've kind of parachuted in here at the end of the series, let me catch you up very quickly on where we've been. Week one, we looked at the role that emotions play in our lives. The four things that emotions do for us. Week two, we talked about how to engage our emotions before God. We looked at Psalm 62, which I just mentioned a moment ago. Week three, we talked about navigating emotions together. How we do that in relationship with one another. And we pulled some key insights out of Romans chapter 12. Last week, we talked about cultivating healthy emotions. How do we cultivate godly, healthy emotions in our lives? And we looked at Psalm 19. Today, we're going to be talking about starving, unhealthy emotions. Now, like I said last week, I I compared the the cultivation of healthy emotions to cultivating a a garden bed. And, And what I said, if you want to have a healthy garden bed, it's going to take time and effort and work. It's going to take water and sun and fertilizer and so forth. But you see, the key to having a healthy garden bed, it's not just cultivating the plants, It's also protecting the plants from insects, disease, weeds. If you want to have a a healthy garden bed, you, you need to remove the pests and you need to pull the weeds. And if you don't do that, if you neglect it, if you forget about it, eventually your garden bed will be overrun and overcome. Maybe some of us have some garden beds at home that are looking a little bit overrun and overcome. Now, it's similar with our emotional lives, with our hearts. We not only need to cultivate good, healthy habits, we also need to remove the pests and pull the weeds. And if we don't do this, eventually our hearts may be overrun and overcome. This is why the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 32, a very well-known verse. It says, above all else, guard your For everything you do flows from it. That is an incredibly important verse. Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. Now the question is, how do we do that? How do we guard our hearts, especially when it comes to our emotions? How do we remove the pests and how do we pull the weeds? How do we starve unhealthy emotions? That's the question that I'd like us to explore today. And to explore this question, I'm not going to give us three habits to practice like I did last week. Instead, I'm going to share with us three lies that we are tempted to believe when it comes to our emotions. Three false messages that we need to say no to if we are going to starve unhealthy emotions in our lives. Three lies, three false messages about our emotions. The first is this. I shouldn't be feeling this. I shouldn't be feeling this. Now, I don't know if uh, you've watched many old Western movies. You know, the John Wayne-style movies with cowboys and saloons and shootouts and so on. 
Now, I don't know if you notice this, if you've ever seen any, but the bad guys were always wearing black hats, and the good guys were always wearing white hats, which I guess makes it easy in a shootout because you know who you're aiming for. But the fact is, we tend to do this when it comes to our emotions. We put black hats on some feelings and white hats on others. We say that our unpleasant emotions, grief, guilt, anger, sadness, they're bad, we put black hats on them. But then our pleasant emotions, joy, peace, and so forth, they're good, and so we put white hats on them. And so what tends to happen when we feel unpleasant emotions, we tend to think to ourselves, I shouldn't be feeling this. But did you notice in Psalm 142, the psalm which we're looking at today, that David, the author of this psalm, he didn't think that way. He didn't deny or suppress what he was feeling. He laid it very honestly before God. Now, to give you some context, David wrote this psalm when he was being hunted and on the run from King Saul. King Saul literally wanted to kill David because David was a competitor for his throne. And so David flees into the wilderness, and he ends up in the cave of Adullam. And you can see that he's in a pretty low place, because he says in verse 6 that he is in desperate need. He says in verse 7, he describes himself as in prison. He's feeling weary, he's feeling trapped, he's feeling afraid. But rather than deny his feelings, rather than say, Lord, you know, I'm sorry that I'm feeling this way, I know I shouldn't be feeling this way. He very honestly brings them to God instead. Look at verse 1 and 2. It says, I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him I tell my trouble. Now I feel a little bit like a broken record, but I'm going to say it again. God invites us to bring all our feelings to him. Not just our pleasant emotions, but our unpleasant ones as well. And this is because even our unpleasant emotions, they serve a good purpose in our lives. I mean, grief is the right response to loss. Fear is the right response to danger. Anger is the right response to injustice. Or take guilt, for example. Now, guilt doesn't feel very good, does it? And we do a lot to try and avoid the feeling of guilt. But guilt is actually a vital emotion for us to embrace. Guilt tells us that we've done something wrong. And it moves us to do something about it. Now, of course, like all emotions, guilt, if it's distorted, it can lead us down some unhealthy paths. It can lead us to wallowing, self-pity, and even self condemnation. But guilt was intended to lead us to God, the God who offers us forgiveness. You see, guilt gets us to stop defending ourselves, to admit we've done wrong, to turn to God for mercy, and to apologize to those whom we've wronged. See, guilt, though it's unpleasant, It's good and it's necessary. And the point is, when it comes to our unpleasant emotions, we cannot simply say, I shouldn't be feeling this. Now, maybe, of course, we shouldn't be feeling something. 
Maybe we do get angry about something we shouldn't get angry about. Maybe we do get anxious or worried about something we shouldn't be worried about. But the fact is, we don't know unless we look beneath the surface. We don't know unless we listen to what our emotions are telling us about what is going on inside of us. In other words, we don't just agree with our emotions or embrace them, but neither do we shut them down or suppress them. We learn to interpret them. We learn to ask good questions of them. What is this emotion telling me about me, about God, about my neighbor? Why does this particular thing make me so angry? Why do I get so anxious when, when this happens? What is God trying to show me and how can he help me in the midst of this? As Alistair Groves says in his book, until you begin to answer these questions, you won't know how to respond to your emotions. Or as someone put it to me after the service last week, they seem to remember either John or myself saying this at some point, and it's pretty good, so it must have been John. They said, we are to go through the fruit to the root. We go through the fruit of our emotional expression to the root of what is causing it. We learn to ask good questions. And so the first lie we need to say no to is I shouldn't be feeling this. The second false message, the second lie is this. I need to act right now. Now, if you remember back in week one, we said that our emotions move us to action. They pull us by the collar and they get us moving. They pressure us to do something. And in some situations, this is a good thing, especially when you're in danger. If you're crossing the road and you see a car coming directly at you at a high speed, your emotions will kick into gear. They will say, jump out of the way. Your whole nervous system will kick into gear. Gets you up and it gets you moving. But generally speaking, especially in our relationships, when emotions are running high, we don't need to speed up. We need to slow down. I mean, think about your relationships and think about some of the worst moments in your relationships. I'm sorry to have to do that to you. In your marriage, in your parenting, in your friendships, chances are that they were moments when you acted rashly, when you lashed out, when you blurted something hurtful, when you did something impulsive that, that you later came to regret. Even if your emotional response is justified, even if you have a reason to be angry, to be sad, to be upset, to be whatever, the wise thing for us to do in those situations is not to speed up, but to slow down. And you know, the Bible has a lot to say about this need to slow down, especially in the book of Proverbs, which gives us God's wisdom for, for life. Let me show you a few examples. Proverbs 16, verse 32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules is spirit than he who takes a city. In other words, it is better for you to have mastery over your own reactions and impulses and emotions. That is better than if you were to conquer an entire city. It's that important. Proverbs 17, verse 27, the one who has knowledge restrains his word. And one who keeps a cool head is a person of understanding. 19, verse 11, 
good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. To not dwell on an offense, to not take offense easily, to overlook an offense. Proverbs 29, verse 20. Do you see someone who speaks too soon? There is more hope for a fool than for him. When it comes to our relationships, when it comes to our emotions, the wise person is slow to speak and slow to anger. The wise person restrains their words. They keep a cool head. They overlook offense. And the reason that we are called to do this, to slow down, to not act rashly, it's because incredibly, amazingly, this is what God is like. Psalm 145, verse 8, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. God does not act rashly or impulsively. God is slow and deliberate. God is patient, especially with us. So imagine the difference it would make in your life if you were slow to anger and slow to speak. If you restrained your words, if you overlooked offense. Imagine the difference it would make in your marriage, at work, with your colleagues or with your annoying boss, with your friends at school, with the annoying person who cuts you off in traffic. Imagine the witness your life might be, imagine the blessing that your relationships might experience. You know, I've recently started listening to a podcast called Dad Tired. Dad tired. It's basically about helping Christian husbands and dads lead their family well. And the host of this podcast is a man named Jared Lopes. And he shares very honestly in one of the episodes I listened to some of his own story. This is what he writes or says. He says, if I'm totally honest, there was a season of my marriage where I sucked as a husband and father. I'm not talking about not taking out the trash or buying my wife roses every week. I mean, I really sucked. Like, I thought we were going to get a divorce. I was mean. I said things to hurt my wife on purpose. I was deep in sin and distanced myself from her and my kids. I remember one particular day when we were in the middle of another argument. I could feel my heat, my heart starting to beat faster and the temperature of my body rising. I was ready to duke it out. As a young and immature husband, I said something that I knew would hurt her. And it worked. She started to get tears in her eyes. I'm winning this argument, I thought to myself. That's how dumb I was. She looked at me in a way she had never looked at me before and said something that forever changed my life. Jared, I just want you to know that I've been waking up every morning at 2 a.m. I go into the living room and I beg God that he would capture your heart again. Honestly, I would have rather she cussed me out I could have handled that better. But I had no idea how to respond to what she had just said. Getting more angry, slamming a door, or storming out of the room didn't feel right. God used those words in that moment to start to answer her prayers. My heart started to soften, and the walls began to come down. That's how powerful it can be. To be slow to anger, to be slow to speak, to restrain our words. 
So the first false message we need to reject is I shouldn't be feeling this. The second is I need to act right now. And the third and final lie, the third and final false message when it comes to our emotions and our relationships is this. This is all or nothing. Now there are some things in life that are all or nothing. For example, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus didn't say, I am a way, part of the truth, some of the life. He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. When it comes to Jesus, it's all or nothing. It's black or white. But this is not true when it comes to our emotions. In fact, black or white, all or nothing thinking only intensifies or exacerbates our emotions. I wonder if any of these sound familiar to you, because I know they sound familiar to me. This is terrible. They are awful. You always do that. You never do this. I'm never trusting anybody again. I don't need anybody. Unfortunately, these are some of the extreme kinds of thoughts that we tend to think and say to others. But as Alistair points out in his book, he says extreme thoughts tend to produce extreme emotions. I mean, if you say about something, this is awful, you will generally experience it as awful. If I say about you, you never do this. Even if you do it, I probably won't recognize it. Extreme thoughts tend to produce extreme emotions. And you know, we even see this in the example of David in Psalm 142. We've already seen the extreme emotions that David expressed. He was in desperate need. He felt like he was in prison. Now, what was driving this emotional turmoil? Obviously, it's the fact that he was being hunted by King Saul. But there's something deeper going on here. And we see it in verse 4. David says, look and see. There is no one at my right hand. No one is concerned for me. I have no refuge, no one cares for my life. David, in other words, felt totally alone, totally abandoned, totally forgotten. No one's concerned about me, no one cares for me. You might have been there yourself. But the question is, was this really true? Now obviously God was concerned about David and David knows this. This is why he cries out to God, he turns to God in this psalm. But was there really no one else who cared about David? We don't really know the timing, but we do know from 1 Samuel 22 that eventually 400 people showed up at the cave of Adullam to surround and to support David. And so I don't think it's totally true that he was totally alone. But in the midst of his pain, that's what he felt. He felt like there was nobody that cared. And you see... Extreme thoughts tend to produce extreme emotions. And this is why when it comes to our emotions, we need to reject all or nothing, black or white thinking. Here's what Alistair Grove says. He says, all or nothing beliefs that produce all or nothing emotions aren't generally helpful, listen carefully, in complex situations or relationships. For example, we can't navigate relationships wisely if we only have the categories of good people and bad people. The messy truth is that even good people sometimes do bad things or unwittingly harm us. 
And even people who do many bad things sometimes actually do good things and may even love us. Do you hear what he's saying? We are complex people. We live in a complex world and we have relationships with other complex people. Our relationships are not always going to be cut and dried, black or white. And so we need to soften our expectations. We need to show some understanding and we need to have some self-awareness. This is why God's word says to us in Romans 12, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Now I'm told that when you're drunk, I wasn't going to make that joke, I shouldn't have. When you're drunk, your vision is blurred. You can't see clearly. When you're sober, you can see things clearly. And God's word is calling on us to see ourselves clearly. To recognize that we don't have it all together. That none of us have reached a state of perfection. That we are all works in progress. And this is so important for us to recognize because it helps us to be understanding of others. It helps us to be realistic about others. It helps us to reject all or nothing thinking. It stops us from writing someone off as all bad, or expecting someone to be all good. The truth is, we are all a mixed bag. We are all created in the image of God with dignity, value and worth and the ability to do much good. And yet we are also cracked images, broken by sin and rebellion against God. And so 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. None of us are without sin. That includes me, you, your wife, your husband, your kids, your friends, even your grandmother. And yet the amazing truth of the gospel is that even though none of us are without sin, if we have Christ, none of us are without hope. And 1 John 1 goes on to say in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And I think this is the perfect place to end a series on emotions. In a place of radical honesty and radical forgiveness. None of us are without sin. We all experience the brokenness of fragmented and distorted emotions and yet if we have Christ none of us are without hope we have the promise of cleansing the promise of forgiveness and the promise of a new and better day when Christ will return and when a voice will say from the throne in Revelation 21 look God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new.
Heavenly Father. Lift our heart and our eyes to see the beauty and the certainty of this vision for the future in Revelation 21. No more tears, no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain. Because your son, Jesus Christ, has come and has conquered our enemies on our behalf. So Lord, help us in between the now and the not yet, where we are and what is to come. Help us by the promises of your word and the presence of your spirit to keep trusting you, to keep moving forward, to keep pressing into all that you've promised for us in Jesus. And so Lord, we want to lay our hearts bare before you today. And we want to say, help us, heal us, make us whole for your glory. Lord, we thank you for who you are and for all that you've done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.